millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the McClifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, we're all aware of the awful happenings in Afghanistan in recent weeks as the Taliban took control of the country. Thousands are trying to flee from Kabul airport before the deadline of August 31st, and millions, I think, are hunkering down for a new life under the extreme religious nature of uh, the Taliban, which believes in governing through Sharia law, or at least their interpretation of it. One of the major fears about the Taliban taking over Afghanistan is that they will, as they did when they last ruled, impose laws that literally treat women and girls in particular as if, I suppose, as if everybody is living a couple of millennia ago. Uh, Previously, the Taliban didn't allow girls to have an education or adult women to work or even to be seen outside their homes without their husband. In that vein, women were also subjected to forced marriages effectively becoming their husband's property. But forced marriages are not confined to the Taliban's rule. Throughout parts of the Islamic world, and indeed in various parts of the world at large, forced marriages are still a feature of life. So what is it like in this day and age for a woman to be told she will marry a man who will effectively own her? Joining me today is a woman who was subjected to just that. Dalal Al-Shohaib now lives in Ireland, but she grew up between her native Saudi Arabia and the USA. Her story, I think it's fair to say, is one of triumph over ancient strictures that still apply in many societies. Dalal, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, Dalal, your family are from Saudi Arabia, but as I said, you grew up between there and the USA. How did that come about? My dad was um, working with the National Guard. They sent him off to the States to um, earn his master's and PhD. So we ended up moving around um, between about three states. Right. And so at at what stage did did your family move to the USA? I was, uh, well, it started off a year when I was about five years old. And that was when I first learned um, the English language. And then from nine years old till 2005. So between nine and 15 years old. You were in the U.S. between 9 and 15? Yes. And as I understand it, you used to go home every summer? Yes, we did, for about two to three months. And what was that like going from the U.S. to Saudi Arabia? I used to say it was like getting on a plane and traveling back in time. Because I'd go from (laughs) a Western modern country, and then back in those days, Saudi Arabia was quite... It felt like a ginormous gap in just the time zones that I was crossing uh, to go from that to 
yeah, not a very modern Saudi Arabia at the time. And for example, like as a teenager, as, as you were at the time, give me a few um, ideas there just in terms of the, the, the different cultures that you encountered in that respect. Between the States and Saudi? Yeah. Well, when I was a child in the States, I lived pretty much a normal life like any other child. But then as soon as I hit puberty, everything turned upside down for me. I was forced to wear the hijab, which is the head cover. Um, I wasn't allowed to go to parties. I was basically excluded from Western life. All I did was go to school and return home. And then I was the designated parent for my younger siblings, as I'm the eldest of four kids. Going back to Saudi Arabia, I really don't remember much. We just visited family. Most of the time we would travel abroad again with some family members. And if not, uh, then we would spend... uh, hours a day studying at home to learn Arabic uh, and just study religion and the Quran. And so actually when you were in the States, as you say, uh, Dalal, when you hit puberty, at at that stage, what had been a very normal childhood suddenly changed, presumably um, at the wishes of your parents. Yes, it was my mom in particular. She was the driving force. She was the um, extremist, I would say. And I have to stress that people practice the religion of Islam in a wide variety of ways. Just my mom's was extremely strict her way or you would be punished. And so that's what I was subjected to. Yeah, that, that I mean, I, as we said, there are millions of people who are subjected to that around the world. And it's not just in, in the Islamic world, as I said, there are other religions as well. But it must have been particularly difficult uh, doing so in a, a Western culture, particularly as up to a point. You've been used to living your life that way. Yeah, and for example, every Ramadan, I was forced to fast as well. I, as a child in the States, <laughs> it was extremely difficult. And there was no, um, there was no explanation. It was just, you have to fast or you will go to hell. And there was a lot of fear mongering as well. Um, I mean, I would always get lectured about all of the reasons why I was going to burn up in hell. Um, and why God did not disapprove of me. Once, as a child in middle school in the States, I drew a a God. It was part of a school project, and I went back home and I showed my mom, uh, because the art project, I got an A+, and I was so happy. And when I showed it to her and I explained that this was a make-believe God, I got a massive smack on the face, and that was it. And I got yelled at, and so... In short, the treatment was quite violent and abusive in the name of Islam, quote unquote. And there was no no one there to protect me. And what about friends? Did you have friends at school at that stage or in, when you were in the U.S.? I did have friends as a child. I mean, when I was much younger, between like nine and 12, I had more friends. But I also moved around every two years. So I never really had a stable environment. I was somewhat detached. And... I, the way that I was raised, it kind of, it forced me into silence. So I never spoke to anybody about the violence that was going on in the home, in the States. We were also, um, for example, my parents would um, claim that it was wrong to call the cops because in our families, beatings are okay. They're accepted. But in the States, if a teacher learns that you've been beaten in the home, they would call the cops and a legal process would ensue. 
Uh, so I could not tell the class because my parents scared me half to death if I did that I don't know what would happen. I can't recall exactly what it was now. But I want people to understand that even in a Western society, mind you, there could be we could be indoctrinated as kids, even as young women, that we cannot reach out to Western um, the protection system. Yeah, it is. It is pretty extreme, as I say, to start, start living that life in the midst of Western culture. No, having said all that, none of us knows what goes on behind the closed doors in other people's homes. And you, 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 you can have all various type of things. But as you say, this was for the greatest part in the name of uh, religion. Um, OK, and so then at some stage when you were a teenager, your family moved back to Saudi and um, that itself how, how was that move of itself going from the U.S. back to Saudi, notwithstanding the type of life you had been living in the USA? My goodness, it was intense. Uh, I remember, I'll never forget the day when we stepped off the plane back in Saudi Arabia. It was like opening the oven door. The heat was just right there in my face. Um, and I, at the time, had come from Alabama. And so we were used to the Four Seasons. Uh, so that was my very first memory. And then I was uh, sent to an Islamic school in Saudi Arabia. I uh, had to like memorize the Quran and I didn't get much help when it came to my daily studies. I could not connect uh, between what I was taught in the States in, in terms of like academic schooling and what I had to learn in Saudi Arabia. So that was a, a major struggle. I had to wear the black abaya and cover my face. And I remember struggling, like, how am I supposed to tell like the difference between these women um, and the girls if we're all covered in black head to toe? In time, I got used to it. And you're able to kind of tell from, for example, the heels or the purse that the person is wearing or even the way they walk. But I'll never forget how intensely um, shocking that was for me and again socially you're, you're talking about your late teens and that stage when you'd be you know well i suppose in western terms hanging out with uh your mates and and, and perhaps the opposite sex or what have you even in terms of friends was it difficult to uh get into the scene back in in saudi arabia very much yeah i was too american for my um my classmates and even though we uh, we had tutors, we were still uh, my Arabic language abilities had been quite weak at the time. So I was stuck at like an elementary school level. So going back to Saudi Arabia, going back into high school with basically an elementary um, level Arabic language abilities, that was also quite a major struggle for me. And I had no moral support, no emotional support at all. It was just like, my parents, you better get good grades or, or else. Did you have the impression that your classmates were living according to the same strictures as yourself? Or, or was this very much uh, a thing that you, you, your mother in particular was of a stricter variety than perhaps other parents? There were other students that very much lived a um, similar life to mine, um, very strict on the extremist side, no personal life, no friends, no social life. But I also had um, girl classmates who um, lived a freer life. They were able to socialize, travel with friends even. So you could find a wide array of um, 
you know, these lifestyles, even in Saudi, even at the time. Okay, and then we move on. And um, I think you were, what, you were 18 when you were introduced to your future husband? Yes, I was. I'll never get forget it. It was, I was 18. I was engaged. By 19, I was married off. And no regard to my own wishes. It was all about when, according to my mother in particular, she was, again, the driving force in this whole thing. My father just kind of went along with it. And this man was about 10 years older than I was. Uh, he was a distant relative. And according, because of his like s social standing, he had a good job. I was 18 at the time. My mom was married off and she was about 17 or 16. So it was like, okay, you gotta go. You're 18 now. What do you want to sit around at home doing? Uh, mind you, I was still in high, uh, I was still in university at the time. And I remember protesting a lot. I was abused. I was beaten. I was um, excluded from even uh, going out with family gatherings, which was my only social, um, my uh, only time to socialize. Uh, I was never, ever asked about my own aspirations and desires for my futures. What I thought about this stranger who was going to take me and move me to Riyadh to live with him, what I desired for my um, own future work-wise and family-wise, whether I wanted children or not, none of that was taken into consideration. And I'm curious, when you first set eyes on him, the first occasion on which you met him, did you know, for example, in advance that you will be meeting this man who you will marry? Or I'm just wondering about on the most basic human level, encountering this individual, what exactly your feelings are. For instance, at any point, did you say to yourself, well, maybe I can make a go at this. Maybe it won't be as bad as I think. Do you know what I mean? That kind of thing. Actually looking up here and I have my old journals that I'd been, you know, recording in since 2005. And in one of the entries, I remember writing, thinking, saying, well, I'll do this for the sake of my parents, because if my parents approve of me, then God will approve of me and hopefully I'll go go, um, go to heaven. And I tried really, really hard to convince myself that this was the right thing for me. When it came to like setting my eyes and seeing him for the first time, it was just, honestly, I was repulsed. It was like an instant no, I can't do this. I don't want this. I was given a heads up, I think maybe a couple of weeks or something, because he was coming from abroad as well to see me and to check me out physically and if he liked what he saw, then he would say, give my parents the go-ahead and they would marry, marry me off. That was essentially what it was. So I dressed up on that day and I remember walking in with a tray and it had some juice and, uh, I don't know, a few other snacks. Sat down. It might have been a total of five minutes. Um, and that was it. And then I walked out, walked into my mother's room. And I remember collapsing on the floor, just sobbing in tears, like, oh my God, what just happened? And of course, the next day he calls uh, my dad and says, yeah, I want her. And was the plan, Dalal, you said he came from abroad, was the plan that you would live abroad or, or, or where was he living at the time? He was living in the States. He was getting his master's in the US and he was nearing the completion of uh, his master's program. And once his program was uh, to complete, he would then 
marry me. Uh, so I was 18 at the time. That would have been about a year and a half later was when we got married. No, it would have been a year later because I was 19 at the time. Um, March 2019. And what's the plan that when he completed his master's, you'd move back to Saudi Arabia? Yes. And I lived in Jeddah at the time. So I would move to Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, and live with him, which is what happened. And the wedding itself, was that a traditional wedding, the the, the partying around it and that, and, and you obviously being at the center of it? Uh, yeah. Um, interesting that you would say traditional weddings, because I don't know how much of it is actually very traditional. For example, I wore the... Um, white dress, the white gown that you guys are familiar with in Western society. And then there was the walk down the aisle. Um, there was the uh, wedding ring and then um, putting on the jewelry as well. And then the next day we went to the, on our honeymoon. And I really tried to accept the whole thing by being like, well, at least I go to Europe. <laughs> and the day itself of your wedding, like, mm. as you, you mentioned, walking down the aisle. So what was going through your head? I so I have the the video recorder and you can see at one point I am sitting like on this um throne thingy and you can see me trying to hold back tears and I remember before going down I'm like mom I don't want to do this and she's like just put a smile on your face like smile smile <laughs> uh, so what other choice did I have um I couldn't seek refuge by going to the cops there not even family members. I couldn't get on a plane and travel. I was trapped. And like I said, like I had no autonomy whatsoever. I was property being moved around from one family to the other. And so, so began your wedded life and you said you, you, you went on honeymoon to, um, to Europe and then went back to Riyadh. And from that point, as far as you were concerned and as far as he was concerned, you were expected to settle into this role of wife and do as you're told and presumably um, have children according to his wishes or whatever. That, that, that was the general deal. Mm -hmm. And like the names of the kids were already set. So I had no choice over anything. Um, from the honeymoon, like within the first few nights, he said that he was ready for me to get pregnant. And I remember really freaking out, but luckily my mother was on my side at the time and she was like, no, tell him you need to finish your university because I had one more year. And no, because I had just bought all of these new clothes. If I were to get pregnant, they wouldn't fit me anymore. <laughs> so that was the practical reason. So I went through that one year um, taking birth control and he had approved of it. After I graduated, I ended up taking birth control in secret. I would go to the pharmacy and just buy like a stock. And I think I bought six months worth at a time um, at one point. And I would hide it somewhere in our apartment and then just take it in secret. He took me to a um, gynecologist uh, at one point to see what, because he was confused. Why isn't she getting pregnant? He thought that I had come off the um, uh, birth control pills. Uh, but luckily, that, that appointment, it was just me and the doctor. He did not attend. So I, after the appointment, I basically, I made up um, excuses and just said it needs time and everything is A-OK -okay with my body. So that bought me a few months. And it's interesting you say that uh, to some extent, certainly in the initial phase of your marriage, that your mother was on your side, yet she was the one who 
was very much of the more extremist version of the religion and all that flowed from it, including right down to um, the forced marriage. Yeah, exactly. Even I thought, I mean, I tried really hard to convince myself that maybe being married to this guy was better off than living under my parents' roof. But then it was like I could not, again, get any autonomy because she would have me uh, send photographs of the meals that I would cook, how I would dress, what what shoes I would pair with, what dress and what bag. And if I made a mistake or a choice that she did not approve of, I would get verbally abused nonstop. It was traumatic. Was your husband physically abusive to you? Not physically, verbally, sexually, mentally, emotionally. I was excluded from everything. I Once I completed that last uh, year of university, I was um, on lockdown at my home 24-7. And again, did, did you have any friends at that stage or people who were in a similar scenario to yourself? No, no, nobody. And in your experience, Dalal, was that predicament... Um, exceptional or typical of perhaps particularly in Riyadh in the city of, of, of people, young women your age? It's more closer to typical. When you have an environment where the woman cannot seek any kind of refuge, um, any kind of help or support, it creates a breeding ground for a scenario like mine to happen all over the place. So my story is not an exception at all. It is very common. And because I'm also very public about my story, I always get emails and DMs through social media about girls. And you wouldn't believe the amount of messages that I get to start off with. Dalal, you have no idea how much your story is similar to mine. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Okay, and just back to your story. So how long were you married for? It was a total for about two and a half years. And how did you bring it to an end? Um, so a few things went my way. Um, my parents ended up separating. And like I mentioned earlier, my mom was the whole driving force from all of it. But then when uh, she and my father separated as a woman in Saudi Arabia, I automatically, um, my dad gets custody of me regardless of my age. So my dad was kind of lenient at the time. And because it had been two and a half years and I had not gotten pregnant, people were starting to, starting to talk and speculate in my, um, my ex's side of the family. And also they could see visibly on my face that I was miserable and it was um, bringing shame onto my um, ex's family. So they felt pressured to let me go. And I did tell his mother as well uh, towards the end. I was like, listen, you'll never get a grandchild from me. I do not want this. And I I couldn't um, just succumb to the lifestyle that they wanted me to live. Eventually, she came around and convinced her son to divorce me. And you mentioned there, at, at this stage, you were, you got married in 19, so you were, what, 2021? 20, so when I got the divorce, I'll never forget it. Um, March 13, 2013. That was the date right. of the divorce. Right, but uh, what I'm curious about is you said when your own parents separated, you were, well, I suppose legally, in Saudi terms, well, an adult. No, there, there was no such thing as an illegal adult in Saudi Arabia. 
Uh, I think now, very recently, when the, within the past what one or two years, there have been significant changes. But at the time, there's no such thing as just property. Literally, you never reach adulthood. So you, as you describe it, that that accurately describes that your father had custody of you no more than, for example, if you were five, seven, ten exactly. years of age. Exactly, and that was the case up until I moved to Ireland. And one other thing, then, and you mentioned about you. Obviously, there was no children coming. Somebody in your scenario who, for example, wanted to but couldn't have children, what would be her fate then? Um, if they had money, they would seek um, medical intervention. If they did not, the husband had the option, would have the option to take on a second wife. And it depends on the circumstances. If the wife had her family's backing, then they would um, advocate for the husband to divorce the wife. If she didn't, if she was poor, she had no means of supporting herself, then she ha- would have to make do with being um, just one wife to a husband who is taking on more than one wife. And notwithstanding the whole scenario around children, for example, irrespective of whether you had children or not, it would be open to your husband to take on a second wife yes. as well? Yes, absolutely. And a third? Yes. And how frequent is that? Um, how often it happens within Saudi culture? Yeah. I know it's common, but I don't know the statistics. Oh, yeah, yeah, but it, it, it's relatively common. Pretty common because it's legal. I'm sure, I'm sure they hardly keep the statistics. <laughs> and there's social support for it, and it's, there's also religious support for it, so um, there's not much resistance. What what happened to you then, Dalal, after you, you got out of the marriage? Presumably, on one level, it was a huge uh, sense of relief. Mm, yes. But what prospects in terms of your career and that would you have normally in a situation like that? Were you to stay in Saudi? Um, it would depend entirely. So had I been in Saudi Arabia and still under my father's um, rule and control, I my options would only be limited to whatever he allows me to do. It wouldn't be based on my resume or or skill set or anything like that. And that was actually the case for me. I had a I got an offer to work in the UAE uh, for a company because I had done uh, so well in their branch in Saudi Arabia. But when I told my father, he was like, no, you need to be here in Saudi Arabia so I can keep an eye on you. And I was he was always threatening, threatening to take my salary away as well. Um, he did not allow me to marry Eric, which is why I now live here in Ireland with my Belgian partner. Okay, and tell me about Eric. How did you meet him? We met in Saudi Arabia. He was an executive chef in one of the cafes in Jeddah. And it was a few months after he came, to, he had, uh, he moved to Saudi Arabia. It was, um, we met online. I'll leave it at that. And it was, yeah, we, after speaking for a few months, surprisingly, it was just an instant click. It was like, that's the one. Just as, you know, sometimes you have this gut feeling, like the time where I was sure that my ex was not the one and that I was sure I would never um, have children from him and how I was sure I was going to get out of that marriage one way or the other. That gut feeling came up when I saw Eric. Um, And we tried for a few months uh, to convince my dad because supposedly he was nicer at the time. He was supposedly open-minded. But then when things... I guess he was hit with the reality that his 
own daughter wanted to marry a foreigner, he said, um, no way will that happen. Our family will call you, I don't know, can I curse? B, the B word. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So for him, it was all about the optics. I could do whatever I want in secret. And I would go to underground parties as well in Saudi Arabia. I would tell him he would be a-okay with it, but just don't let the family know, um, preserve my social image. And correct me if I'm wrong, but according to the narrative you have there, this was perhaps the first time in your early 20s when you, um, in a conventional sense, had the opportunity to be attracted to somebody of the opposite sex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was very much against um, relationships and marriages because I had also seen what life was like, uh, what a marriage was like through my eyes observing my parents, it was very toxic and very bad. And so I was under the impression, well, if this is what a marriage is like, I don't want, I don't want it. And then I grew up, got a little old, older, was forced into a marriage and that, that solidified my belief that marriages were bad. But then, you know, sometimes a person just walks into your life and changes oh, of everything. Course. <laughs> of course. And how, how did things advance then? Because as you said, you, you're in Saudi and your father, your father said, okay, well, you do what you do, but you do it in private and there'll be no such thing as a marriage. So how, 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 where did you go from there? We tried very hard, Eric. Um, actually, we tried to observe um, social customs uh, as much as we could. And I did not meet Eric face to face until Eric met my dad twice face to face. And he expressed his interest in meeting me. Um, because he was interested in marrying me. So he wanted to indicate to my father, express to him that I am a stand-up gentleman. I am not here to play. I am interested in your daughter, and I would like to date her with the view of potentially marrying her. I showed my father that very same interest. And um, it was completely, he shut us off from the very beginning. But I got lucky because... I was due to travel um, to Ireland on August 2015. So that would have been a year and a few months after Eric and I had met. So that left us the opportunity to um, advance our relationship regardless of my father's um, intentions. And what brought you to Ireland? To get a master's degree at UCC in management and marketing. All right. Oh, so you didn't really come to Ireland at all. You came to Cork. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for a few months. And then Eric came over here as well. Yeah. So it was an entire year that we had kept going back and forth with my father. But then his it started, instead of it being a no, let's not talk about this, it escalated um, yeah. to very serious threats to the point where um, Eric had to call um, his Belgian embassy and notify them and tell them, should anything happen to me, then you guys should know who to shine a light on. And my dad was in the National Guard at the time as well, and he was very high ranking. He's retired now. So um, the threats that he were making were serious and they were not to be taken lightly. When I, um, we, Eric and I managed to carry on with the relationship and then after I realized that, you know what, my dad was not being reasonable um, and I have rights. I'm a grown woman. I was in my early 20s at the time. And regardless, uh, regardless of what he wanted to enforce, I was hellbent on 
choosing the path that I wanted to take in my life and expressing my freedoms how I wanted to. So we ended up dating in Saudi and we would go to like Western compounds and meet at um, family uh, homes and apartments. And that's how we carried the relationship in secret. When I moved to Ireland, things escalated. I filed a police report, uh, showed them my evidence. Eric was like, okay, if we can't do this in Saudi, then, and we were serious about this relationship. So that would mean that he would have to move to Ireland. And we've recently celebrated seven years together. Lovely. And sorry, just quickly, when you say you filed a police report, to what extent um, was that, Bella? I, because I was a student at UCC at the time, I um, suffered an emotional breakdown and I called the health department and asked for some uh, psychological support. Uh, right. Because of uh, I, the threats are actually recorded on my phone right now. They were very serious, um, and they were not to be taken lightly. And he talked about getting um, the Saudi embassy involved as well, and um, causing serious harm to Eric, who was also in the same city at the time as my as my father was. And knowing Saudi Arabia at the time, you could get away with anything if you knew the right people and you had enough money. And as you say, both of you um, moved here and I think you eventually you moved to Dublin where, where you're both living now. Yes. And the other thing that arises, your family now, um, your relationship with your father? Non-existent. And your mother? Non-existent since I got the divorce. Even before, for example, Larry came on the scene, your mother was, um, as far as she was concerned, getting the divorce was a red line between the two of you. It wasn't just that. It was, I had come to my senses and realized, listen, the way that I was being treated, even if it's by my own mother, was entirely unacceptable and unjustifiable. So she, it was easier for me to cut her off. She, I mean, she took steps to end things with me. And I was like, you know what? I accept this and I will make this permanent because um, what I endured is never justified and... As far as I'm concerned, she's an unconvicted criminal, if I'm honest. And what about your siblings? My siblings are still in Saudi. Um, I don't want to get into that. It's a very sensitive topic. But I, right. yeah, I can't really stay in contact with them because I'm the rebel daughter who is living a very kafir or infidel life um, in Ireland with her foreign husband. So imagine the optics. And are you happy in Ireland? Very happy. Very grateful. Would you see your future here? Definitely. I'm counting down the days till I get my citizenship. Very good. And yeah, it's um, it's certainly you, 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 you've come on some journey. I think there's no doubt about that. Um, and I suppose there's a lot of learning in it as well as a lot of pain. Yeah. But you know what? I've grown a lot from it. Lots of therapy and I'm a better person and I'm able to give back to women who are in the position that I was once in. So I guess all in all, a lot of good has come out of my story. I know you're living here now and you're removed to a large extent, Dalal, but to the extent that you would have any contact or, or even observing media or whatever out of the likes of Saudi Arabia and similar societies, do you think that much has changed since your time and your experience, particularly in relation to the forced marriage? Yes, I know a lot has changed. And also there are more opportunities for women to, uh, to voice their refusal to marry 
but still, in a lot of cases, nothing has changed because family pressure and family influence can just bend almost any woman. And unless she can exit the home, the environment that she is in, and financially support herself, and if she doesn't have a very powerful family with connections, then she stands a chance. Other than that, then no. Dalal, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Dalal. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. And thank you, folks, for listening. You can get the podcast on all the usual platforms. And we'll see you again next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.